Welcome to Redefining Reality, where we live at the intersection of wellness, business, and the birth of a global tribe. So relax your body-mind, open your heart, and recognize that we are the ones we've been waiting for. What is going on, my friends? Brian Hardy here checking in with another episode of Redefining Reality. And it's been a minute, y'all. I have missed y'all. I have missed putting episodes out on this podcast. It's been a bit wild. Lots of travel, lots of adventure, and with that, lots of challenge at times and growth and lack of organization, hence why my podcasts haven't been regular. And yet, if you're tuning into this, maybe this is your first time tuning in, maybe this is your, you know, 70th time tuning in, maybe you've been here from the beginning, regardless, I want to take a moment and thank you for being here, thank you for tuning in, thank you for sharing your attention and your valuable time with myself and with the guests that I bring on, because I think it's valuable, and I'm very, very pleased that you do as well. Today's episode is a bit of a... Uh, more so than usual, out-of-the-box episode in that I've been diving into some research as of late and really finding how it seems to be the case that many of the things that we take for granted and we hold as truth, even in the alternative health space, might not be true, might actually be false. And this might actually be leading a lot of us astray and into... Um, troubling territory when it comes to managing and understanding our health. So I was really excited to have my guest on today, and we'll get into a bit more about him in a moment here. Uh, But first, I just want to share a couple messages with you. The first message, the first thing I want to bring your attention to is your breath. Yes, that is correct. Your breath, the air you breathe, the diaphragm and lungs in your body, how deep is your breath right now. Check in. Tune in. Take a moment. How deep is your breath? Is it super shallow and rapid? Are you feeling anxious? Or is it very relaxed and deep and calm and full? That is the kind of breathing we want to be practicing. So, with that said, a couple things. Uh, Number one that I want to draw your attention to, this is a supporter of the podcast and my work, is Neurohacker Collective. Neurohacker makes, in my opinion, the most complete nootropic formula on the market. That is Qualia. Qualia Focus and Qualia Mind, both amazing products. Qualia Focus being the pared down version that's least less expensive but still does the job. And Qualia Mind being really the Cadillac version, the Cadillac experience is going to get you into enhanced states of mental performance, cognition, and flow, which I know we all could benefit from having more flow in our lives. Am I right or am I right? And so if you've never tried Qualia, they do an amazing thing, and that is give you 50% off your first order. 
and 100% money-back guarantee if you don't like it. So if you happen to be one of the few people who tries it and doesn't notice anything or doesn't feel enhanced significantly, then you can send it back and or just write them, tell them what's going on, and they'll refund you. So that's pretty awesome. And you can save an extra 15% on anything you order at Qualia by using the coupon code BHARDY. That's B-H-A-R-D-Y. 15% off whatever it is you get over there, be that their Qualia or their new formulas. But definitely try their Qualia, particularly if you are into brain hacking and nootropics or want to get into brain hacking and nootropics. You won't be disappointed. And if you are, let me know because I'd like to, I'd like to hear about those things. Second up, as always, we got Vitaging, my favorite source for medicinal mushrooms, tonic mushrooms, tonic herbs, Ayurvedic herbs. Things like reishi and lion's mane and ashwagandha, things that keep me feeling great, keep my energy supported, keep my recovery on the up and up, even if I'm traveling, even if I'm not sleeping enough, um, which happens to the best of us. You know, it really does, especially when you're living in a city and you want to, you want to squeeze all the juice out of life, as I like to do. You know, sometimes you get worn down, sometimes you get worn out. And that's where the adaptogens and the tonic mushrooms can keep you strong, keep your immune system strong, keep you from getting sick, keep you from getting depressed or anxious or overly burnt out by fueling yourself with some good goodness from Vitaging. So head on over there, use coupon code HARDY, and you'll save 10% on whatever you order. And that is all I've got to say in terms of the sponsorships. Uh... But, oh, here we go. Almost forgot. How could I forget? Almost forgot. I am launching a Patreon page. If you don't know what Patreon is, let me tell you. Patreon is a online community membership-based website that allows creators of anything, in my case, podcasts and videos and health coaching sessions, to build an audience, build a tribe, and get paid directly by those people to support their ongoing creativity and creative work, which I think is pretty awesome, right? To be able to directly support people whose work you value and whose work you benefit from. That is amazing. That is a gift. That is a gift of the modern age, and uh, I'm going to tap into it. So uh, by the time you hear this, there will likely be a few tiers up there. I think I'm going to start with a basic tier, which is just sort of a podcast and behind-the-scenes content or unreleased episodes because I've realized I do quite a few recordings and episodes that they're not really full episode worthy. You know, there's some goodness in them and they're raw and they're cool to listen to, but it's not really a full podcast episode. And so those kinds of clips will start to be uploaded to the member site, to the Patreon site, um, as well as some videos I'll be uploading up there as I travel and do my thing and host events and have talks and just interview cool people. I'll be putting some exclusive videos up there, uh, as well as uh, health coaching clients, right? So both for video-based online health coaching, um, as well as email-based, there will be a few options available for you uh, that you can do on a month-by-month basis. Uh, that allow you to tap into my expertise and my knowledge so I can help you in your own journey. Um, and in doing so, you are sending a little bit gr of your green energy 
uh, towards the podcast, which is so much appreciated. So patreon.com forward slash Brian Hardy. Just as it sounds, as my name is, B-R-Y-A-N-H-A-R-D-Y, you'll find some options to further support my work in this podcast and the upcoming goodness that I've got in store that I want to share with y'all. So that is all. Now on to the episode. So I had my friend Georgie, a.k.a. Hydet, uh, if you follow him on his Ray Pete forum, um, you know, publishing and so forth. And if you've never heard the word Ray Pete, um, then this episode will be an eye-opener for you. Uh, if you've never heard of um, Georgie, uh, which I wouldn't imagine most of you have, then this will also be an eye-opener for you. But we dive into a few really interesting things, uh, really look, taking a metabolic approach to health and physiology um, and starting with metabolism and looking at energy production and looking at the things that stand in the way of that, uh, which are many in the modern world, um, and diving deep into how we got into this idea that low-carb and keto were like the panacea, were good for everybody, and were sustainable long-term. And if you've been following my journey, you know that I was very much in the keto-slash-low-carb camp for a few years. I do think it helped me in some ways in terms of rebalancing my gut bacteria, and I'm quite certain then it uh, harmed me in some ways, including burdening my liver and uh, increasing stress on my thyroid and hence my adrenals. Um, and I never really understood what was going on fully. I didn't have a deep appreciation um, for what, what was going on. And in my case, that meant cold hands and feet and a low basal body temperature, um, number one. And then... Uh, you know, bouts of anxiety and depression and feeling brain fogged and slow, um, all of which are very, very commonly linked to a hypothyroid. Um, and that is something that I'm seeing more and more uh, can be caused or at least exacerbated by a very low carb diet uh, and stressful periods of fasting uh, and so forth. So do not just simply buy this dogma that's going around these days, particularly in the biohacking circle, um, that that fasting and keto are like the be-all, end-all. I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of people are actually going to hurt themselves or are hurting themselves. And it's going to take a more balanced approach uh, that looks at physiology first and metabolism first as a way to create long-term and sustainable health. And unless you have epilepsy, or some certain form of cancer, uh, as far as I can tell, ketosis and ketogenic diets are not sustainable in the long term uh, and will lead to issues um, because it's just very unnatural to be eating massive quantities of fat. I don't see how that's ancestral or evolutionary. It just doesn't make sense. You know, the There's a reason the body prefers glucose and will always burn it preferentially and I used to see this as a bad thing, um, and now I see it as just a matter of fact. You know, it's a matter of fact, and it's how nature evolved. And sugar is this amazing source of energy that is sweet to the taste and fuels our cells and uh, really keeps our metabolism running. Um, and alongside good protein and healthy fat can be very, very health-promoting. And so let's not demonize sugar. Let's not demonize any food necessarily um, and get dogmatic. And so 
we're going to dive into some of that. We're going to dive into Georgie's story and some interesting uh, information around serotonin and cortisol and how those are both stress hormones in many respects and how serotonin got the rep um, of being the feel-good hormone, which apparently it was more of a uh, scientific dogma pharmaceutical uh, campaign um, to to convince people that serotonin was in fact the feel-good uh, balance hormone um, and that apparently that was due to uh, anti-LSD propaganda at the time. So fascinating stuff. I hope you enjoy this episode. You'll find all the show notes linked up at brianhardy.ca forward slash Georgie. You'll see the stuff I talked about for Neurohacker and Vitaging and Patreon. So if you feel called to engage uh, my support or engage those um, affiliates, it would be so much appreciated. And I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Reach out, as always, through Instagram or Facebook or email. I'm here to help. I'm here to support. I am also taking on a few more online coaching clients as we speak. So if you are at that point where you're ready for change, maybe you're dealing with some energy issues or some digestive issues or some anxiety and depression, know that you are not alone. Know that I have been through similar waters and have made it through and learned a lot and would be thrilled to be able to support you along your own journey. So just reach out through whatever means are most effective for you and we'll be in touch. All that said... Enjoy this episode and have yourself a gorgeous day. Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Redefining Reality. Today is going to be a good one. We're going to bend our minds and expand our understanding of all things metabolism and nutritional science and much, much more. As I'm here with my new friend, Georgie. And Georgie, is a fascinating individual. I have been diving deep into some of his work, some of his uh, online content, all around um, these seemingly simple concepts to some, in terms of scientific understanding, seemingly foundational uh, concepts. And yet it, it appears that a lot of the uh, mainstream, uh, or particularly the mainstream uh, medical view and health view, but also the alternative uh, health practitioners and complementary practitioners and so forth, um, who I have, you know, um, worked alongside with and, and identified as for many years. It seems that even we may have bought in into some myths around uh, health and metabolism and nutrition and um, that that could really be hurting a lot of people. So, Georgie, I'm excited to have you here. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad to be able to speak and. Um, Hopefully, we can provide some valuable information which uh, should be able to help people improve their lives. Uh, almost everything I'll say, it's pretty pretty uh, simple, actually pretty pretty intuitive, which is probably the key word. Um, and many of those things, uh, as, as we'll find out during the show, many of the things you hear from your doctor are actually uh, often complicated for a good reason. It's to create a barrier to, to entry for people like, like regular people who want to take matters, matters into their own hands. The industry, so to speak, any industry, in a sense, depends on you being ignorant and depending on them instead of finding out what really is going on. And as it turns out, many times, if not most of the time, life 
turns out to be pretty simple and health is not an exception, at least based on information I've seen. Yes, and I would have to agree. And the more that I study health and the more that I'm around, you know, people I perceive to be masters or well along the path to mastery, um, there's, a, there's a sense of simplicity and clarity and uh, groundedness in nature that, uh, that usually comes through. Um, not usually, pretty much all the time, comes through. And I think that that's the direction that, uh, that collectively we're heading. Um, and so, again, I'm excited to dive into some of this. And for everyone listening, you'll find show notes to the things that we talk about over at the blog, which is brianhardy.ca forward slash Georgie. That's G-E-O-R-G-I. And we'll have everything linked up there. So as we jump in, I would love to just get, you know, the shortened version of what it is that brought you to be doing this work, to be researching these topics, to be uh, serving people in the way that you do. How did you become you know, who you are and, and involved with the, the work that you do today? Um, it started actually pretty benign for me. I was, I was in college, just like you know, many, if not most people these days. Um, in college, I was a competitive athlete. I was an NCAA Division I rower, um, and I really loved it. Um, I guess any exciting club activity team activity when you're younger uh, is pretty exciting and you know it, it 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 felt very healthy both mentally and physically so after I graduated from college in around 2003 I, I you know I, I decided to keep you know uh, I wanted to stay physically fit and wanted to be involved in team sports but um, you know for a person who's already graduated rowing wasn't wasn't that much of an option because I was rowing in an eight-person boat and you can only get access to this if you're still in the in the educational institution so I picked up running instead, and I had been running as part of, you know, the, like part of the preparation for the, for the rowing is, you know, you do these endurance type activities, so, and running, running and swimming were two of them. So anyway, so I focused on running and swimming, you know, and keep, things, things just kind of kept going well uh, between 2003 all, all the way up until 2008, 2009. And then I started getting, you know, basically interested in the paleo diet, uh, which was just at the time, um, it was it was uh, becoming more widely known. Uh, and I'll do a little digress here because it will be uh, it will become important later for the talk. But basically, while I was still in college, I was working with a uh, with a biochemical group called the Bio the Biomedical Research Foundation. They're they're based on the premises of Georgetown University. That's my alma mater. Um, and uh, while my um, educational background is in IT, I basically have degrees in computer science and mathematics. Um, when I graduated, there weren't that many, you know, when I was close to graduation and after graduation, there weren't that many opportunities for people with degrees like mine because, as everybody knows, the dot-com crash happened around 2001, and for a while, nobody wanted to touch people with computer science degrees. So the only job I was able to find at the time in the vicinity was working with those biochemical people. Um, so after graduation, basically, I worked with them for for two years and I kept doing the running and swimming and, and the active uh, athlete lifestyle, maybe four to five times a week. Um, and um, around 2008, 2009, I got into the paleo diet, which is a low carb diet. Um, and I basically uh, continued what I was doing. My doctor was thrilled. He kept saying, oh yeah, that's like the latest and greatest. We're all starting to find out how bad sugar is for you. Uh, we, always, we always thought it was fat, but now it turns out it's the sugar. That's a great thing. You know, you're at the forefront. Keep going, keep going. And after about, a, it, didn't, it didn't take very long. After about a year, I started getting these really weird symptoms around towards the end of 2009. 
um, I started getting really severe insomnia, headaches, um, basically a muscle weakness in various limbs, which really freaked, freaked my doctor out. So I endured a, a battery of tests. I had an MRI. I basically had a, a number of different imaging studies. Um, I don't, <clears throat> can't even remember how many blood tests. You know, everything came back clear. Uh, and he just kept saying, yep, yep, just keep exercising, keep exercising, and, and you know, keep the sugar low. So now when I look back, I mean, because I, I kept a, like a diary of sorts, um, I was running six, six miles a day, four to five times a week. And I was also hitting the gym and lifting weights pretty intensely. Um, and I was also eating ba basically zero, you know, down to zero grams of, of carbs. I was really meticulous in how I tracked it. Um, so um, I continued to get worse. And the doctor was, didn't even know what to tell me, basically. At some point, he just said, well, you know what? It's all in your head. I'm like, yeah, but you, you did the objective measurement of the muscle weakness. That's not in my head. He's like, yeah, that's right. So what are we doing about it? Well, nothing, you know, we can't do anything until you get worse or, or you get better and then we don't have to do anything. So that's really kind of like how medicine operates. I mean, if you get worse, they'll, they'll, they'll start getting even more aggressive. And by aggressive, I mean um, dangerous invasive tests, because if you're getting worse, then the law says that these tests are justified and the insurance company will usually pay for them. And if you're getting better, then you don't get to, you know, you, you leave and you don't go back. So that's kind of medicine operates right now. There's no really interest in knowing you or figuring out what your lifestyle is and what could be causing this. It's all transactional. In fact, even the FDA um, doesn't call your doctor a doctor anymore. They call him a provider, a vendor, and you're just mm -hmm. a consumer. So anyways, long story short, um, I wasn't getting any better. And then one day while I was searching, while I was Googling, um, I think I typed aspirin and, and like muscle, muscle strength and then rapids article popped up. So I read the first one and then I was hooked immediately because throughout my work with those biochemical people back in a few years back, I had acquired enough knowledge to understand what the article was all about. And I had been practicing, you know, I basically, while I was with those biochemical people, uh, I was the only non-IT person, I'm sorry, I was the only IT person on the team. There was there were 40 or 50 of them, and they were some of the brightest biochemists in the world. They all had positions at NIH, Pfizer, you know, various other um, prestigious institutions around the world. Um, there's a, a Swiss prot, there's an Institute of, of Biochemistry and Genomics in Switzerland. So there was, there was about 47 of them, and I was the only person who wasn't a biochemistry person. So naturally, I go out with them to happy hours and whatnot. And I became interested in the work, wanted to learn more. They said, you don't need to go to school. It's a waste of time these days. You're going to pay a lot of money and you can get the same knowledge because, because of the internet, you can get the same knowledge online. So just listen to what we say, read these books. They gave me like a list of maybe three or four. And they said, after that, it's all PubMed. It's all reading the reports of experimental studies. So that's what I kept doing since 2003. So, so anyways, here we come. You know, we're at, you know, we're, it's 2009, the end of 2009, and I'm not getting any better, and I'm reading these repeat articles, and it suddenly clicked. So the whole theory of repeat is that if you interfere with the proper production of energy from food, you will unleash the floodgates to hell, um, which is something that mainstream medicine, as you mentioned at the beginning, vehemently disagrees with. Uh, mainstream medicine view is that you are a product of your genes, once you're born, basically you have a genetic blueprint and everything, the only thing that can happen, the only, the only bad things that can happen to you are two, actually three, trauma, if you break a limb or something, right? Um, infection, if you got an infectious disease, 
some kind of a poisoning. You know, if you get, I don't know, bitten by a poisonous snake or a scorpion or some other animal like that. Or the chronic diseases, which are basically the, uh, really the public health crisis these days. It's not the infectious disease. It's not the poisoning. It's not the trauma. It's not even the gunshot wounds. It's, it is the chronic diseases. Um, they basically, the modern mainstream view says, um, these are because of your genes. You have, you have inherited a bad gene or, or, you know, or you've acquired a mutation to it. And that's why you're, you're developing this disease. So there's no mentioning. There used to be almost no mentioning of the environment because the environment was assumed to not be able to influence genes. Now they're starting to say, well, actually the environment doesn't matter, but we're still going to focus on genes. We're going to call the whole thing epigenetics. So notice, notice that the word genetics is still there. So it still focuses on your genes, but now they're trying to kind of bake the environment in secondhandedly um, in a really haphazard way and say that, well, it's still your genes, but it's the environment that determines how these genes are expressed, activated, etc. So we're still going to focus on the genes, but we're going to admit that the environment does play some role. Well, the metabolic theory of health, which is what Ray Pete's ideas are all about, and they're really not his ideas. Like if you read his articles, he reports mostly um, on, on, on the work of other people. Many of them are Nobel Prize winning uh, scientists, including people that, uh, you know, gave the Warburg effect in cancer its name, Otto Warburg. In other words, Linus Pauling, uh, a Canadian uh, Nobel Prize winning person, uh, Albert Saint-Georgie, uh, a Hungarian-American who also had, has a Nobel Prize Prize. And the work of all these people essentially showed that we, we're, we're like a, we're basically like a light bulb, which stands between the two poles of a battery, right? And one pole, which is supplying the electrons, is food. And the other pole, which is accepting those electrons, is oxygen. And we're in between. And how intensely we burn, in other words, how intensely this electron flow flows from food to oxygen, determines how bright we're going to shine. And by brightness, I mean health, I mean the, you know, the, the, our energy levels, I mean, basically our intelligence, our fertility, everything apparently depends on energy. And it's, it's kind of intuitive if you think about it. I mean, clearly, like if you, if, if you, if your car doesn't have any gas, um, it's going to start sputtering on the road and eventually it, it's going to stop. Right. But the, because we're not simply mechanical, um, objects, we're also biological beings in our case, the energy that we produce from food is also used for a number of different functions, which even mainstream medicine doesn't deny. Um, there, all the energy we produce is used for cellular maintenance. It's used to clear out debris. It's used to, it's used to fight infections. It's used to heal a wound. Every, all, every single one of these processes depends on energy. So if you, if you interfere with the production of that energy, um, all hell breaks loose and there's no telling exactly where it's going to hit you even though it has been shown that you, the organs that have been somehow compromised previously um, tend to deteriorate first. So if you, let's say if you had like too many mammograms as a preventive quote unquote um, approach to, to breast cancer, and then you become, you know, severely hypometabolic. In other words, you, you interfere severely with the production of energy. Chances are that, you know, breast cancer may start developing there, you know, in, in the breast gland because the breast gland has been injured through so many, different bouts of ionizing radiation, which is no unknown carcinogen. Even your doctor will not deny this, but they will immediately try to, uh, you know, placate you by saying, oh, don't worry. It's the same, it's the same dosage that you get when you're flying, you know, uh, on a plane from New York to LA. Uh, uh, yes, 
and, and no. Basically, when you're flying, the higher you are, the less the less radiation you absorb from the cosmic rays because the higher you are, the, the more energetic they are and the, the less dense the atmosphere is. So most of them actually pass right through you and you don't absorb much of that radiation. When you're getting an X-ray at close to sea level, you absorb pretty much all of it. And there's a reason why now the radiation technicians are actually standing outside of the room uh, because before when they were inside the room, when they would do 10 to 20 x-rays a day, these people were, were dropping like flies from cancer, all kinds of cancer. So now they're actually standing outside of them. Anyways, long story short, the metabolic theory is that we, we are uh, electronic machines and we depend on that electron flow that comes from food and goes to oxygen. Um, and that electron flow is, gets turned into the metabolic energy. We call it ATP. Mainstream medicine calls it ATP. But in general, the intensity of the flow, just like a light bulb, determines whether we're going to be healthy or not. Well, the opposing view, the mainstream view, is that your fate is largely fixed. You're a product of your genes. If the environment plays a role, it's a very minor one. And it mostly concerns uh, silencing or activating specific genes. So it's a very mechanical view. Well, the metabolic view is a very dynamic one. You respond to your environment every millisecond in, a, in real time. Uh, almost everything in your environment affects you. And, and, and basically how you respond to, to these uh, stimuli, these challenges from your environment also depends on energy. So for example, the very, uh, I guess, misused example of stress. A stress is anything that requires a response from you in order to, be, in order to overcome it or, or at least resolve it, right? So if you continually get challenged, challenged with a, um, I don't know, with some kind of an event that you need to respond to, it has been shown in animal models at least because it's genetical to do with humans that um, if the animal is not well fed or it's sick, the animal actually very quickly succumbs and it can even die. I mean, if, if, the, if, the, if the, the challenge is, is too intense, too strong, and the animal cannot muster up an energetic response, the animal simply curls up and dies. There are no genes involved. It's strictly energetic. Well, the same thing happens to humans. We don't get, thankfully, I guess, we don't get exposed to that many intense stimuli every day, but we do get exposed to a battery of, of many smaller ones, and they're usually, <laughs> at this point, they're 24-7. Talk about, your, you know, your phone always being on, your, you know, your emails, your boss is always on your case, you know, asking you to do things, um, you know, your family is always contacting you, which is not, not a bad thing, but still, Every single one of these things requires you to spend to spend energy in order to to handle them. That's that's just how the human consciousness works. And when you don't have enough of that energy, then you become the irritable, cranky, and eventually mentally ill person that we all know. There's probably you know more than one in our uh, of these people in our surroundings simply because they cannot muster up the metabolic response, the energetic response um, to to respond to the world. It's not a coincidence that children are much more lively, much more energetic, and they, they tend to bounce, bounce these things off of themselves without much thought, and they quickly forget them and move on. It's the adults who dwell on things and ruminate, and, you know, a rumination is actually a prime, prime sign slash symptom of depression, and it's, really, it's usually an indication that uh, your, your energetic uh, reserves, your, your energy production pathways are really not, not working very well. So those are the two main ideas, and Ray Pitt really writes about the, the energetic way of looking at things and it affects everything every aspect of life it's not just health just the way we interact with the world depends on our energy on our ability to produce energy if we don't produce enough we'll interact with the world in a very limited very rigid and stratified way 
And anything that, that, that violates the, these rules that we created ourselves is going to be either discarded uh, or attacked or ignored. Uh, in other words, anything that doesn't fit our worldview, we'll, treat, we'll either try to ignore it, and if we can, we're going to try to fight it. Well, children are very open-minded. Anything that comes into their worldview, they try to incorporate it and modify their own worldview to better fit the world, which, again, immediately and intuitively does sound like the more appropriate approach to, to living life. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I came into this uh, environment, and I've been essentially involved with Peterianism, if there is such a world, since 2009-2010 timeframe. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. And there's a few things that you mentioned in there that I want to dig into and that I think people will have questions about. And so, I mean, the first one, and, um, and we didn't talk about if you were ever uh, given a diagnosis or, or not by a doctor. Um, did they ever you know, slap a, a catch-all sort of label on you? Uh, not only do they do, but uh, I've noticed through actually relatives of mine something really, really disconcerting. And, and uh, when I actually, when, when, at this point, it's already been confirmed, but uh, not many people will think about it. If you take your diet, let's say you go to the doctor and they say you have cancer. Uh, let's just say let's let's just say it's breast cancer. Um, typically, what people do then they'll basically start working with a doctor on some kind of a treatment plan, which of course involves uh, chemo, radiation, and surgery. Uh, the cut, poison, burn approach, which as I'll explain later, it's actually a very primitive approach. It comes from uh, from the military industry. That's how they that's how they treat the enemy. And cancer is considered a, a, an alien life form that needs to be destroyed because otherwise it will destroy you. It's a very militaristic approach. But long story short, if you actually take your results, your, your, uh, your, your, your test results, not your diagnosis, your test results, and let's say you go and you ask for a second opinion, there's a study, which actually multiple studies that looked at this, and they found out that in the 97.2% of cases, that's actually pretty much everybody, you will get a different diagnosis at a different doctor. And then let's say you take that, that, you know, the same results, right, and then you go to a third doctor. Again, in the overwhelming majority of cases, the diagnosis will be different. So this, at this point, so, I mean, this is a pretty serious diagnosis. It's not like somebody told you you have the flu. So this is a diagnosis that requires making essentially, you know, life and death matter decisions uh, in a matter of a few hours because they also, they also keep pressing you, you know, that's the other thing. It's not like they allow you to collect your thoughts and, you know, and, um, and decide what to do. You're kind of being told that, uh, look, we're working against the clock here. If you don't make a, we don't start soon, you know, that's it, it's over. So people are naturally stressed out, people are naturally freaked out, and they don't know what to do. So, but, but the, uh, what, 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 what these studies found is that the, what actually people don't do but should do is actually go and, go and ask for a second opinion. Um, and when they do, it turns out that no two doctors can agree on the exact diagnosis. That's why now that certain states actually passed a law where you, when you go and ask for a second opinion, you will actually, by law, because the doctor will usually ask you, but in some states you can refuse to answer, but in some states now you have to actually provide, because uh, 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 you, you will fill out a form at the second doctor and the form will say, have you ever, be, have you ever seen another doctor for, for these symptoms and have you ever been given an official diagnosis? And you will have to answer in some states. Uh, it's only, I think, four or five, but the number is growing because the, the, the medical profession realized what, what, what the conundrum they're in. What if the public suddenly realizes that no two doctors can diagnose the same disease? What if the public realizes that one doctor treated them for a disease they may not even have? Mm. What, if, what if the public realizes you're getting irradiated and cut into pieces and poisoned with chemotherapy for something that was never, 
I mean, the, it's just that the first doctor made a mistake, right? There's no requirement for, and think about it. These are like, let's say, in the, actually in the, in the, in the criminal justice system, Whenever there is a death penalty case, there are multiple checks and balances to ensure, well, not to ensure, but at least dramatically reduce, and by dramatically, I mean, I mean down to one in a million. That's, that's, how, that's how far they want to reduce the chance. And they keep trying to do new things to reduce the chance even more. They want to reduce the chance of executing an innocent person as much as is humanly possible, right? There's no such requirement, actually, in the medical industry. You know, you can go to your doctor who will, give you essentially a death sentence, which is, let's say, stage four breast cancer, right? Metastasized, spread all over the organs, et cetera, et cetera. And then you agree to get treated by that doctor. But if it's a stage four cancer, they will tell you right off the bat that you're finished. It's just a matter of, you know, how much they can prolong the, you know, the agony, you know, and then they, they, they at some point, they start talking to you about, you know, improving the quality of life and things like that. But so it's akin to a death sentence. And there are no, there are no these checks and balances that exist in the criminal justice system. In the criminal justice system, as soon as you're sentenced to death, your case goes to an independent review board for to to be looked at. People, um, actually, multiple layers of people, multiple layers of review, and none of these people are, are able to talk to each other and influence each other's decisions. They're not able to protect each other from, let's say, making a mistake. The whole point of the of these layers is that. If any of these layers says, nope, this person looks innocent, um, something here doesn't look right, then the whole thing starts, starts from scratch. I mean, this, the, 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 you know, the, I don't think the, the, the conviction is immediately vacated, but you know, chances are if one of these layers of review says you're innocent, your lawyer will find a way to get you out. At the very least, you will not get the death sentence. You'll get something else, right? Mm-hmm. There are, there, and, and we're doing these for criminals. We're doing this, this multi, these multiple layers of checks and balances for criminals but we're not doing them for patients. Your doctor is essentially given, you know, a, a blank check. They can do, he or she can do whatever, pretty much whatever they want with you, as long as they're adhering to the so-called standard of care, which is a doctor cannot be sued, as multiple court cases have decided. Uh, a doctor cannot be sued by you or, or by your relatives if he or she has adhered to what most other doctors are likely to prescribe in a similar situation. And what do, we, what do we mean likely to prescribe in a situation? Well, the FDA publishes guidelines for treating every officially named medical condition out there, whether it's breast cancer stage four, whether it's multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis. As long as your doctor adheres to the official guidelines, they're completely safe. They can murder a perfectly healthy person, and there is a squat that can be done. Nothing. The case will even be dismissed at a preliminary hearing. There won't even be a trial. So um, it's yeah. really, it's really, it's really nefarious. It's really scary because you know you suddenly you realize that for these extremely important decisions that most people don't think about because let's face it, nobody wants to be sitting in a room and you know uh, ruminating a cancer diagnosis, especially an advanced one. It turns out that you know it's not there's there's very little certainty about this diagnosis. So I don't know. Maybe some people like certainty. I mean, but when it comes to something like this, I think most people would prefer the uncertainty. And the studies back this this idea that it looks like your doctor unfortunately cannot be trusted not because they mean you harm it's simply because some of them do i mean actually unfortunately about 17 percent of doctors were found to make malicious decisions that were directly to your detriment um you know there uh, there are many news cases i can send you the articles for those the doctors were actually found to purposefully diagnose people with cancer so they can give them these ridiculously expensive and toxic treatments and it turned out these people didn't have the cancer. Some people even died from the treatments. Anyways, 
that's that, that tends to be in the minority. You know, let's say 70% of the doctors are malicious, but then that leaves 83 that are not, and they're simply either dumb, um, either incompetent, or something with the system, something in the way we diagnose disease and, and create names for these conditions, something about this whole, this whole process doesn't, doesn't work right. Um, maybe cancer is a much more malleable disease than we think it is. Maybe it's much more environmentally driven than we think it is. I mean, there, um, there are older studies that, that were done in the 50s and 60s that wanted to see um, how, how does the condition of a cancer patient change over time and back in the 50s and 60s, there were many people who were actually simply refusing treatment. Um, nowadays, it's almost unheard of. I mean, the, the patient will quickly get, um, you know, essentially uh, muscled in by the relatives to accept treatment, or they'll get labeled as mentally ill, and then they'll be forcefully treated if they refuse. If they start spotting nonsense like, well, let's give it some time, let's ask another person, et cetera, et cetera. These are all your legal rights. But, uh, you know, uh, once when you're sick, you tend to be vulnerable, and people, some people will take advantage of that simply to protect the profession. Anyways, back in the 50s and 60s, they did studies with advanced cancer patients. I think most of the studies were with breast cancer. And they were, done, they were done in the Appalachian region. And that was the region that had the least access to, to, to healthcare. It was a very poor region. It is to this day. And these people simply don't like going to the doctor much. They just, you know, they live out there in the woods and they don't want to be bothered much by, um, you know, by, by, the, medical, by the medical industry. And then the, these studies, these fascinating studies found that even a person with a uh, stage four, what, what medicine will currently classify as terminal breast cancer, these people ended up living for decades afterwards. It's, it, and the nodules, the various, the, the various lumps that they had all over their body, they varied dramatically in size and even number, depending on when the doctor examined them. So if you go to your doctor, let's say in December or January, these happen to be the worst months because... You know, metabolism is affected by the weather and the seasons, and naturally it's high in the spring and the summer, and it's lowest in the winter. So January happens to be the worst. If you go to a doctor in, in January, chances are that whatever condition you have, it doesn't matter what it is, but actually it will, it will manifest itself in a much more uh, intense way. You, you will look worse, you will look sicker, and, and chances are that the blood test will, will corroborate that view. If you go to and see your doctor in May or June, chances are you will look much better. And that's what these studies found. So, and, and if this was true for something as serious and, and potentially, you know, uh, lethal in the, in the short uh, run, such as, you know, metastatic breast cancer, imagine if it's about something less intense, like a rheumatoid arthritis, you know, or I don't know, or, or, or multiple sclerosis or heart disease or um, diabetes. All of these conditions are very malleable. They, they tend to get worse or better. Some of them disappear completely. Maybe they come back a few years later. But the bottom line is that um, current, the current approach to medicine is very rigid. It's, it does not allow for change much. And once you're diagnosed, you're diagnosed. It's almost like being branded. You know, there's no going away from it unless until medicine admits that you've been officially treated and cured by the official approaches, which are always cut, poison, burn. Surgery, um, basically chemotherapy and, and radiation. So that's that's the current situation. It's really not pretty, not pretty at all. Yeah, well, it, it's very clear that the medical system is, you know, a self-perpetuating and preserving system, like all systems are, um, and that we're not going to find the solutions through that model, right? It's going to take people, you know, taking personal responsibility and doing their research and doing their own experiments uh, to provide enough case uh, examples to others to start to really believe this and to see through 
sort of this uh, illusion that's being created by the medical system. Um, and I want to I want to dive now deeper into some of the actual biochemical happenings and uh, some of the um, some of the reasoning uh, as to why someone wouldn't want to necessarily and particularly long term stick to a very low carb or you know these days keto is all the rage um, and why doing something like that can become very detrimental and. I know in my own study and, and experiments that um, I'm seeing more and more of the uh, thyroid liver connection. Yep. How when the liver is not being fueled properly, uh, then it can't activate and detoxify our hormones as well as its other myriad of functions and, and that can lead to a lot of degradation. Um, but I'd love to hear you sort of break it down because you hear in the keto space, the paleo space, you know, that there's no need for carbohydrates you know, that we don't have to eat them and that, that, that we can be perfectly healthy uh, just eating our meats and our vegetables and so forth. Um, and I've experienced that not to be the case, um, particularly if people are, you know, um, exerting themselves in the way that you were, you know, a sort of a amateur or high-level athletes, that it certainly seems to be the case that carbohydrates can definitely help with recovery and performance uh, and just feeling good and being able to sustain that level of activity. So I'd love for you to sort of break down um, like what's actually going on on a metabolic level in somebody who maybe they had some good, you know, quick weight loss effects from doing low carb or keto and maybe they felt good in the short term. Um, but then what that can easily turn into and why we need to essentially not buy into the dogma around the low carb keto sort of approach to things. So I'd love to hear you sort of break that down for us. Sure, sure. Two quick examples before I get into that. Uh, when you go to a hospital and if you're really malnourished or, or weak or exhausted or sick or let's say you have a chronic disease, you're getting admitted for the, I don't know, 10 times. The first thing they do is they'll put you in a glucose drip. They don't put you in a fat drip. They don't put you in a protein drip. They put you in a glucose drip. And I, I know several doctors and I've asked about this and, and I've read it, of course, but I wanted to confirm. And to this day, I mean, even medicine will admit that glucose is the preferred fuel for anybody who is, at a, at, you know, who, who, who's, whose energetic demands are high, but they're not really in a position to, you know, to, to produce this energy from other macronutrients such as amino acids and fat. So glucose is, to this day, the preferred fuel, um, at least in the medical system. Second example I'll give is um, after running marathons or during running marathons, um, you go into, of course, extensive fat burning because the glycogen, which is stored in your liver, which is a, a special form of, of storage for carbohydrates, it's enough for only, let's say, it depends on the liver health, but even in a healthy person, it will probably run out within the first 30 to 45 minutes, run out. And then after that, and of course, marathon lasts for four, four five, six hours. Uh, after that, you switch to burning fat and, and muscle, by the way, because also um, muscle gets broken down when cortisol is elevated. So they found out that if during the marathon or after the marathon, you give, you give the participants a, a drink which was sweetened with, with sugar, with sucrose or glucose or even fructose, and then you just made them do like a mouthwash, like a swishing, swishing with the liquid uh, uh, in their mouth, and they didn't even have to ingest it. Then after they spit it out, their fatigue immediately disappears. So there's something about glucose and in general about the sweet taste that works directly on the brain to suppress fatigue and, and provide um, a, like, a, like an energetic boost, despite the fact that these people are really in a, stent, in a state they've 
um, of, of malnourishment in a sense and, and extreme stress because you're not supposed to be running uh, um, your butt off for like for five, four, five, six hours. It's just not an activity that the human body was meant to do on a regular basis or enjoy. Many of these people are in pain. I'm sure many people have heard of the sudden cardiac deaths that happen every marathon. You have at least one or two people, usually elderly, usually sicker, but they're always there, right? So it's not, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an activity to be taken lightly. So why does this happen? Well, there are three macronutrients, as everybody knows. There's the, the carbohydrates, the fats, and the proteins, slash amino acids. So, you know, yes, it's true that you can produce glucose from other sources, such as the amino acids. Actually, in other animals, they can also synthesize glucose from fat, but I, um, to the best of my knowledge, in, in humans, it cannot happen. It can only happen from, car from uh, amino acids. So when you completely restrict sugar, um, the brain actually has a, has a tremendous preference for sugar over fat. And then it will do what it, what it can to get the sugar, right? To get, to get these carbs. So when you, when you don't get them in, in the diet, what, what happens is that the brain increases the production of something called corticotropin releasing hormone. It's a hormone that's released from the hypothalamus, which is a, you know, part of your, part of your brain. And then that hormone starts circulating around in your, in your cerebrospinal fluid. And then it reaches the pituitary gland, which is right behind the very, very top of your nose. Um, and by top, I mean like where, where, it's, where it, uh, the base meets between the eyes. So right like about an inch behind that, that's, that, that bone plate there is your pituitary gland. And when it senses this uh, hormone, abbreviated CRH, the corticotropin releasing hormone, then the pituitary starts releasing something called ACTH, adrenocorticotropin hormone. And that hormone gets into the bloodstream, starts circulating around, and then it reaches the adrenal glands. And then the adrenal glands, as soon as they sense that hormone, they start producing cortisol. So cortisol is the stress hormone. Everybody, uh, or at least most people have heard of it. It's always released as part of the fight or flight reaction. And it's main, actually has two main purposes, but the main one really is, is to keep your blood sugar high enough to the point where your brain is always fed and you don't pass out from hypoglycemia. Um, not sure how many people have a diabetic in the family or you know, know a diabetic, but these people can actually die from hypoglycemia because they, if they don't inject it, right, if they don't get it from the food, uh, it's just the way their, their body is structured is they can actually, their blood sugar can drop too low if they inject too much insulin. Um, and, and the brain is really sensitive to, the, to, to changes in blood levels of glucose. It really needs its glucose. But what happens in a healthier person is that whether you're under stress or not, the brain will ensure a supply of glucose at least you know, as much as it needs, maybe other organs need it as well. And the way it does that is by stimulating the production of the stress, the entire stress cascade but specifically the hormone cortisol. And um, even, even, even the enthusiasts in the low-carb community will admit that ele chronically elevating your own cortisol is not a good idea. Um, so what happens when you elevate cortisol? Well, it starts breaking down all kinds of tissues. Really, it's really indiscriminate. Actually, it can cause even the brain to atrophy. And unbeknownst to many people, because your doctor will not tell you that, is cortisol and serotonin are actually the main causes of depression. Uh, there are drugs uh, that, were, that are used to block the cortisol receptor, and they're now being used to treat depression and, and post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, and schizophrenia and a, and a number of other conditions that, that look so bizarre and, 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 and mystify the doctors left and right. In reality, they turn out to be simple endocrine imbalances. So anyways, long story short is if you restrict sugar, you, your, your brain will force you to produce it by dissolving your tissues with cortisol. And by tissues, I mean muscles, I mean organs, I mean skin. 
So you can actually see this. Uh, it is, it's illustrated in a very good way. If you look at long distance runners who have been doing this for a while, and I actually, I started looking like that, you know, towards, you know, the, the end of my involvement in these circles, you get really thin skin and your veins, you can actually see your veins through the skin. You, you, you look like a, like a web, like a bluish web of all of these blood vessels and veins running under your skin is because cortisol is really thinning the skin down. I mean, it's converting it into amino acids because it is made up of amino acids and it's using these amino acids. The liver is using these, these amino acids to create sugar, uh, uh, glucose specifically through the process of gluconeogenesis. Um, so it also, it, it, it dissolves your muscles because they're actually almost entirely made of amino acids. Um, it starts dissolving, uh, you know, it atrophies the brain, even though the brain is mostly fat. It doesn't do it, you know, on purpose. It's just, that's how, that's how cortisol works. It dissolves everything that is non-essential because during the fight or flight response, the assumption is, at least the evolutionary assumption when we evolve, is that you don't need the non-essential organs. You just need to save yourself because there's a bear chasing you or like a, you know, a hostile tribe or there's, or you have to run away from a natural disaster. Whatever the reason is, the presumption is um, we, you, you know, we can get rid of everything that's not absolutely crucial because survival is of, of, of prime importance. Of course it is. But that's what happens. You know, when you restrict sugar, you're essentially activating that fight or, fight or flight response and telling your body that things are really not good right now. Get rid of everything that's not needed and we'll, we'll worry about it later. Well, if you continue doing this for a while, eventually all that, all that remains is just, you know, the very basic survival machinery and some, a few essential organs. It's, it's a very, it's, it's a picture that's very far away from the picture of health. Um, and when you restrict sugar, you're also activating, of course, the oxidation of fat as an alternative source of fuel. Um, and maybe people think this is a great thing. That's how you lose fat. You know, that's because you, you burn through it, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, that's not the case. I, and I recently posted a study which looked at uh, uh, whether increasing the oxidation of fat actually leads to weight loss. And found out that not only it doesn't, and I'll repeat that, it does not lead to, to uh, actually weight loss. It actually, what happened is that it had, uh, started to generate a very worrying pattern of insulin resistance in the liver because all of this, all of this fat that got flooded from the fat stores, from the fatty tissue into the bloodstream, started circulating around and whatever could not be immediately oxidized by the muscles and various other organs, it has to go somewhere. And in, in order to go somewhere, there are only two pathways out. Either it can be glucuronidated and excreted, or it can be turned back into triglycerides and stored once again back into the, into the fatty tissue. Both of these processes happen in the liver. So when you're burning fat and you're flooding the, the liver with too much fat, you're, you're, you're very directly damaging the liver's ability to work. And, and it really has devastating consequences, systemic consequences for many other organs and, and you know, for, for the system as a whole. It, it can, over time, if this is done chronically, it can lead to insulin resistance and even type 2 diabetes. That's what the study found out. Um, and and if, if this continues, basically the, fact that, the very fact that you oxidize fat is also an evolutionary signal. It usually meant starvation because that's what the main purpose of the fatty stores is, is when, when, when food wasn't available. But what happens is that starvation usually goes with very, very hostile uh, environment. Uh, it's not an environment that's really, really hospitable for, for a high level brain activity, uh, for reproduction, for, for joy, for recreation. 
um, you know, the oxidation of fat, the, that's the way the organism is structured, is that it's always taken as a signal that things are not going well, that you're under stress, that, that you're not healthy, that something is, is bothering you, something is chasing you down the road, you know. You know, there could be an animal that's, that wants to eat you and is capable of running more than, a, more than a mile, right? Most animals wouldn't do it, but there are animals like a wolf can chase you for miles. So if you're running like that, you know, if you're running for more than a mile, you switch to burning fat. And, and again, all of these processes are signals to the body that, that your health is not optimal, the environment is not optimal, and as such, the health really will not be optimal until the environment improves. And the, the, uh, the basically the provision of glucose, the appearance of glucose in the bloodstream, especially from digestion, is usually a very quick and potent signal that things are, 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 turning, are becoming better, are, are getting well. Hence the example with the marathon runners where they didn't even have to ingest the glucose. All, all the body had needed was a sign that glucose was nearby, that it was in their mouth, and then, and then they, their performance immediately improved. Their, their fatigue lifted. They were able to run much better, and many of them – uh, did much better times than when they were uh, than they accomplished when they weren't taking any glucose. So it really, it's it's a very very clear dichotomy between glucose being a good signal from the environment, doing all kinds of good things for your body, and in fat being a, a stress signal from the environment. And you know when you try to restrict glucose, you're activating the stress signal directly through cortisol and adrenaline. And when you're when you're increasing the oxidation of fat through various supplements or again through stress if it's prolonged because glycogen runs out then once again, you're activating the stress signal. And in general, stressed animals in nature do not do well. They don't, they don't live as long as the others. They're not, they're, 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 they have suppressed immune systems. Um, they, have a smaller, um, they, have, they have smaller amount of offspring. Their off, children basically are not as healthy as previous generations. So really, uh, this, this whole like no pain, no gain paradigm, um, it needs to be taken with a grain of salt, and it needs to be taken uh, uh, needs to be applied to a certain context. Um, you can do well um, under uh, when you're striving, but it has to be a very purposeful struggle, and you have to feel that your efforts are, are going towards a good goal. If you're simply being stressed for somebody else's benefit, that's one of the worst things that can happen. Is because first of all, you feel like you have no escape because clearly, if you ha- if you had, you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't be stressed out. You wouldn't allow that person to stress you out. And second, you feel like you're working towards somebody else's goal and not yours. And the combination of these two things is very detrimental. But in general, stress is, is not a good thing. And I think most people feel that down at a very intuitive level. So it doesn't need much explanation. That's why people intuitively avoid it. No, no, I don't know of many people that would voluntarily stress themselves and subject themselves to misery unless it's for a good cause. Yeah, and it's got me thinking that, um, and would you say it's accurate to sort of simplify a lot of that, the reason why folks can restrict carbohydrates or uh, do fasts of different kinds or intermittent fasting um, and get an initial feel-good, lose-weight sort of effect is simply more to do with uh, the chronically elevated cortisol, which of course is going to give you some sort of stimulation, right? It's going to keep your blood sugar up. It's going to keep you um, energized on stress hormones. Um, but that's actually, and, and that that's actually uh, leading to the rapid weight loss more so than um, this sort of, you know, upregulation of fatty acids uh, as a healthy way to lose weight. Absolutely, yes. And a couple of things here, I forgot to mention this, but thank you for reminding me. 
So uh, first of all, when cortisol is elevated, especially in a person who doesn't normally get cortisol elevated, it has, uh, for the first few days, even weeks, it has a, 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 a tremendous energy boosting effect. And that's what, because cortisol elevates blood sugar, and, and, and that's where all of this extra energy is coming from. And first of all, uh, so, so, so that, that's the energy aspect. The losing weight aspect is actually most of the weight loss that people see initially when restricting carbs is actually simply excess water. I mean, we're holding on to a lot of water on a, on a daily basis simply as a byproduct of the, of the metabolism. The, 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 weight, the quote unquote waste products, because they're really not waste, the waste products of metabolism, the two biggest ones are water and carbon dioxide. Um, and carbs tend to produce more water than other macronutrients when they're oxidized. So when you're eating carbs, you will think that you're, you know, you're, you're fatter, but in reality, this is actually mostly extra water you're holding on to. As soon as you restrict the carbs, this extra water goes away, and you can actually lose 5 to 10 pounds, depending on how big you are, simply by losing that extra water that your tissues are, are retaining or holding on to. That's not the same as, as getting leaner. You're not losing fat. Like the fat loss is actually a much more tightly regulated process. And as the study, which I mentioned, that found that increasing fat oxidation doesn't lead to weight loss. It, it basically is found out that the body's smarter than we think it is. And it upregulates a number of different defensive mechanisms to make you be really frugal with the burning of the fat. So again, remember, if this is an evolutionary process, if we need to conserve this fuel for as long as possible, because that's what stress really should be making us do, then clearly, if we increase the oxidation of fat, it's not like the body will open the floodgates and give you all the fat you need right now, just so you can lose it in a week. That's just it; just doesn't work that way. Um, so what happens is that over time, um, you know, this cortisol is elevated, right? You're losing uh, you're losing all this excess water. You're also losing muscle. So you can some of the initial weight loss that you're seeing on the on the scales is actually mostly muscle. And unfortunately, as things progress, depending on the person and their endocrine status and their health and various other factors, some people actually can lose mostly muscle as part of this carb restriction diet, which is, which is abysmal, abysmal result because your basal metabolic rate, uh, your immune system function, your ability to burn, to turn food and to, to, to metabolize food actually depends on your lean muscle mass ratio to fat mass ratio. So if you're losing mostly muscle mass as part of the carb restriction, you're really hurting yourself. You're really not doing good. You don't want to lose that muscle. You want to keep that muscle. As many people know with age, it's, it's, it's very easy to verify. We tend to carry extra fat and we tend to lose our muscle. If you look at a person who is, who is in their you know, 70s, 80s, or even 90s, these people still have fat, but they have almost no muscle. That's why they're frail. That's why they're weak. That's why the immune system is not working. That's why they can get by on a single slice of bread all day. Their metabolism is so low, that they're, they're almost zombified. So we don't want to get to that state. And that's what carb restriction does. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And I really think that give it a few more years and this will start to become more and more talked about. And the, um, you know, the, rose-colored glasses that people are wearing when they're looking towards these type of things um, are going to, to dissolve. It's going to dissolve. That, that myth, along with many other myths of science and nutrition that have come and gone over the years, um, will be um, sort of dethroned as, you know, the king of the day or the, the diet of the day. Um, and so uh, looking at that, and there's one other thing that you mentioned in there um, that I think would be news to a lot of people listening and that was 
um, in regards to serotonin yep. and its role in actually uh, contributing to depression and um, contributing to stress and being um, you know indicative of stress and when I started hearing this through you know some of your work and, and Ray Pete and listening to Danny Roddy and folks I started thinking okay how how was it that the science ever suggested that serotonin was the happy uh, sort of the feel-good hormone like and maybe you can shed some light on this. Intuitively, I started thinking, okay, are the tests that they're running, whether they're measuring saliva or blood levels of these things, um, would high levels of serotonin in someone who's exhibiting signs of positive mood, would that be precisely because that serotonin is not being bound and utilized, so it's sort of freely going around the system? Perhaps that's completely off base, but I'd love to hear sort of uh, your understanding, your best understanding on how how this is all working in terms of the, the mood component um, when it comes to serotonin. Yeah, you actually hit on a very good point. So um, I don't think they've found like a, an, actually the, the imbalance they found in serotonin at this point uh, turns out to be almost completely mythical. Um, many of the studies that were cited uh, that created the so-called monoamine hypothesis of depression, in other words, that there's this you know deficiency of serotonin. It, uh, many of these studies have either been retracted or it turns out that they don't even exist I actually, uh, there was a study published on, on those studies, and, and it was called Serotonin, an Upper or Downer, and it was by a very famous psychiatrist, and he reviewed the literature and basically said that the evidence for low serotonin causing depression is uh, at best non-existent and at worst fabricated. Um, so I think it started, it was a political uh, decision, um, and that's what, that's what really changes culture, and unfortunately, culture affects science for better or worse, I shouldn't say unfortunately, and then science affects culture as well. So sometimes a very powerful cultural phenomenon will start getting reflected in science simply because um, maybe scientists think it's a fashionable thing to work on. Maybe scientists, because they depend on government funding, maybe scientists think that if they work on something that's politically correct, they'll get more funding, which turned out to be the case. Mm -hmm. Long story short, in the 60s and 70s, the hippie movement, was heavily involved, and they never made any secret of it. But uh, they they uh, they was they were involved with using slash abusing uh, the chemical known as LSD, lysergic acid diamide, diethylamide, and that chemical is uh, aside from its hallucinogenic properties, um, it it had a few others that really troubled the government. Um, um, amongst amongst the one that was the most troublesome is that. It made young people extremely unruly in the in the face in the eyes of the government. Made young people unwilling to follow orders to the point of soldiers in Vietnam um, basically staging mutinies against their their commanders who ordered them to go and massacre you know innocent people in villages. Um, and all in, in this this tremendous amount of literature documenting the uh, the effects of LSD on the brain and on the behavior. And as you can see, having an, an army or having even a population of people who are completely immune to the power of authority, at the very least, they despise it or, or they, they don't respect it or they refuse to follow these orders, that, that can be very dangerous for the entire state. I mean, you can have institutions collapsing because the military is based entirely on following and giving and following orders. So if you send a, <laughs> a platoon on a very on a, on a on an extremely important and sensitive mission and suddenly these people are saying no we're not going to do it because this is immoral or illegal or we simply don't feel like taking orders from a commander 
um, then you're in, then you're in big trouble. So around the late 60s, um, publications started appearing, and there's good evidence that many of them were ghostwritten. In other words, they were written uh, under the orders of an of some authority by you know the writers were were um, were actually uh, established uh, minds, established professionals in the field, but they didn't necessarily believe what they were writing. And you can you can tell this from the tone of the articles, from the tone of the studies. And they started publishing studies basically saying that uh, LSD is really dangerous. It can create completely uncontrollable behavior in people who habitually use it. In short, the, uh, the message that was pushed into the scientific literature was that LSD makes people insane. And since LSD at the time was already known to work mostly uh, in a way opposing that of serotonin, the counter message that was pushed is that, well, if LSD makes people insane and it's opposing serotonin, then if we give them serotonin or a drug that works like serotonin, then it must be, it should be making people sane. It should be making people the way we want them to be. Of course, who defines, you know, what we want them to be? Well, the powers that be, the powers that paid for this research. And, and, and the, the, the image that it, to this day is being promoted in the media of the good law-abiding citizen is that a person who goes and does their work, pays their taxes, uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, rebel against lawful slash righteous authority, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, I guess these things are good for society, but they're not always good for the individual. I'm not saying that people should be criminals, but um, it has been shown that the healthiest people have a very, um, I mean, I, again, I give the example of children because children happen to be the, they used to have the, the highest metabolism and the highest dopamine, the lowest serotonin. As everybody knows, children can be very unruly. Uh, children want to do their own thing. They don't want to follow orders. They don't want to be told what to do. You know, of course, some amount of discipline is necessary for society to exist, but it's, it scales, it's degrees of discipline. The more discipline you have, the more roboticized, the more, the more, um, I don't know, the more zombified, um, you know, citizen is, is that you have, and these people are not healthy. So, so it, it's it's well known in animal research that serotonin is the hormone that triggers hibernation. It's well known that serotonin is the hormone that immediately starts rising during darkness, during stress, during exposure to toxins, during exposure to radiation. So, if serotonin is a hormone that's always rising during these stressful conditions then um, the presumption shouldn't be that it's a happiness hormone. Nobody's happy when they're getting blasted with, uh, uh, with atomic bomb radiation. Nobody's happy when they're getting tortured to death. Nobody's happy when they're starving and they can't find food. But yet invariably in all of these situations, and really in any situation of stress, serotonin rises and dopamine falls. So this, after, I mean, and then of course follow-up has been done, follow-up research, but um, you know, mainstream medicine immediately contends, immediately counters with the statement, well, the, these are all animals. Well, yes, that's true. But how about this? Every single animal model from which, um, into which serotonin has been investigated, including all the way up to human-like apes, in other words, chimps, gorillas, and orangutans, and bonobos, naturally a subset of chimps. In every single animal model, including our closest relatives, serotonin has been found to be profound depressant not antidepressant, it actually depresses the animal, makes the animal want to curl up and it doesn't want to deal with the world. It makes the animal care about nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, uh, that, that is the definition of depression. It makes the animal unable to experience pleasure. It's scientifically, the name is anhedonia. Uh, so it may, by hedo, you know, hedonistic meaning seeking pleasure, right? 
Um, so all of these symptoms that are known signs and symptoms of depression can easily be reproduced in any animal model tried so far simply by either injecting serotonin, subjecting the animal to stress so that serotonin rises, or giving the animal drugs that work like serotonin, the same drugs that are currently used for depression. Now, I'll forget this email, these emails saying, well, Georgie, um, you know, we're all using Prozac and Lexapro and what are the other uh, serotonin drugs because they work. Well, guess what? Yes, they do work. But what, what the doctors diabolically did not tell you is that many of these drugs that actually are successful antidepressants, these drugs are partially anti-serotonin. Um, it's not a very well-publicized fact that the drug Prozac, which is probably the most popular antidepressant, both by name and in terms of sales, is actually it blocks the serotonin receptor 2C. Um, it's still heavily serotonergic in other systems, but blocking the receptor 5-HT2C, um, it, this is the master receptor that controls the synthesis of cortisol. And as I mentioned earlier, cortisol is now known, even by mainstream medicine, to be implicated as a, as a direct cause of depression. There are drugs being developed to block cortisol at the receptor level or to inhibit its synthesis, and these drugs are known to be powerful, powerful antidepressants, often working within hours of being used. Recently, FDA approved a nasal, intranasal uh, antidepressant known as esketamine. It's a derivative of the club drug ketamine, which people used to get high on. And one of its known effects is, the, is its rapid antidepressant effect, which kicks in within hours of using it and lasts for up to four weeks. And, and uh, one of the main mechanisms of action of ketamine is that it inhibits the synthesis of cortisol. So if serotonin, if, if the serotonin receptor 5-HT2C is the primary driver of, of the synthesis of cortisol, then blocking it will actually decrease the synthesis of cortisol. In addition, all of these successful antidepressant drugs that doctors are promoting, they're known to increase the synthesis of a, of a steroid in the brain known as allopregnanolone. It is a steroid that is derived from progesterone. Um, and FDA recently approved that direct steroid as an actual antidepressant drug for treating postpartum depression. So all of the successful antidepressants, the serotonergic ones, are known to, number one, block the synthesis of cortisol by blocking a specific serotonin receptor because these two systems are related. And you immediately see why serotonin cannot really be a happy chemical. If serotonin and cortisol are so tightly involved that they always go together and cortisol is known to be a cause of depression, then you can't have a serotonin be a cure. It's likely a cause as well. So anyways, all successful antidepressants Dec uh, block uh, uh, one or more serotonin receptors as a result of which synthesis of cortisol is decreased. And they also increase the production of antidepressant steroids such as allopregnanolone. And now, of course, these drugs are still serotonergic. They're called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So while you're getting the antidepressant effects, the heavily pro-serotonergic effects all over the entire body are still there. And serotonin is, is known to be a cause of every single type of fibrosis happening in any tissue of the body, whether it's lung pulmonary fibrosis, cystic fibrosis, heart failure, liver failure, cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is just another name for liver fibrosis. All of these are driven by serotonin. Drugs exist on the market that block, specific, that block the serotonin effect at specific receptors and are now known to reverse fibrotic conditions that were told to be irreversible. Um, Pfizer, the nefarious company, 
while selling you, I think the drug Lexapro is theirs, um, or, Fi- or Prozac, I'm, I don't remember exactly, but they do have a very popular blockbuster SSRI product, uh, serotonergic antidepressant on the market. So they're selling you this, this drug and telling you it's good for you. And in the meantime, behind everybody's back and without really much announcement at all, they're running clinical trials with a, with a drug that works as a complete antagonist to serotonin. And they're using this drug to reverse, currently they have four clinical trials in place. They're using this drug to reverse cystic fibrosis, pulmonary idiopathic hypertension, which is also due to pulmonary fibrosis, heart failure, and cirrhosis. So these pharma companies are selling you the poison and the remedy. How nefarious is that? Yeah, it's quite the, um, you know, the situation that they've cooked up for themselves to be both causing the problem and potentially solving the problem and keeping everyone who is in search of truth and real solutions confused with these different theories and these politically driven, uh, you know, pseudo-scientific claims and, you know, so-called facts. And so it's very, very interesting and something that I, you know, I'm going to continue to dive deep into and continue to follow your work and study, you know, the things that you've already put out there because there's a lot that you've put out there. Like for people who are listening, um, you know, definitely do some digging around and, and we'll point them towards some of that just shortly here. Um, yeah, I can but, show you that link. Uh, I think somebody put it together. Um, they collected more than 70 different posts and every single one of them is, is actually a post on a study. It's not, it's not George's opinion. It's not George's blog and George, George's journal. It's actually Georgie posting on studies that show uh, more than 70 different areas uh, in, into which serotonin is extremely pathological. Uh, it makes people homicidal. It makes people suicidal. It makes people completely unempathetic to their fellow men. It makes people selfish. It makes people greedy. All of these different bad qualities that we know are bad uh, are actually, in one way or another, are tied to serotonin. But really, the more important picture that people should, the more important message people should walk away with is that all of these are actually tied to stress. Ultimately, stress leads you to become an organism that cares about nothing except its own survival. And I know this is the narrative pushed, um, you know, through mainstream saying, well, that's how nature is. That is not true. When, when, when they're in times of plenty, organisms are altruistic and egalitarian. Of course, everybody has a self-preservation instinct, but it only kicks in when you're threatened. So why threaten people to start with? Serotonin turns out to be one of the primary mechanisms of threats. Uh, of uh, threat that is being manifested either from an external entity or internally, if you tend to ruminate too much, to, if you've been stressed in your childhood, you know, it's, it's the serotonin keeping you up at night and, you know, thinking about things that are long gone and shouldn't really be bothering you, but yet you're still thinking about them and you can't get them out of your head. That's serotonin work. Yeah. And so similarly to, as you said, you know, definitely take these um, so-called facts with a grain of salt. Um, and a spoonful of sugar would probably actually be better to take them with. Absolutely. To start relieving some of the stress physiologically. Um, and, and it makes intuitive sense when you hear about, for, you know, one example that comes to mind is the, uh, you know, the phenomenon of school shootings and how I think almost all of those individuals have been uh, recently prescribed and taking, uh, you know, antidepressant drugs shortly before they go and actually uh, pull the trigger on these, these crazy plans. Um, so there's no, there's no coincidence there that 
those drugs that apparently are supposed to make you feel good and happy and balanced are actually doing quite the opposite, which as we know, uh, you know, those of us that have been in this, you know, space and, and questioning things for a while, that it's usually the case that the exact opposite of what we're told is far closer to the truth. Um, and so to remain open and flexible and to, to do the experiments ourselves, right? And to, as you said, I love how you started really with, uh, you know, um, the, the fact that it's an intuitive understanding. Exactly. Mental masturbation, it's not over-intellectualizing. It's what do you sense, right, at your deepest core that is going to drive you and help uh, reveal truth and deeper understanding to you along your journey. Exactly. So some thought is obviously crucial to human existence, but too much thought is, is clearly detrimental. And if you're, you're finding yourself in a situation where either you're overanalyzing something in order to convince yourself that it is true, or somebody else is overanalyzing it for you and presenting it as the expert opinion, chances are that that's not the truth. Truth is usually simple. Look up to children, as, you know, uh, for example, of, you know, for, uh, as an example of good guidance is, is, is how they navigate the world and how open-minded they are and how they solve their problems. They don't, there's no expert sitting and whispering in a child's ear. Uh, they're finding everything out by themselves and they seem to be doing pretty well. You know, I have to say that it's not a coincidence that, that the grown-ups are jealous of children. It's, you know, children have something, this ability to, to, to uh, embrace the world and work together in concert with it and not perceive the world as a constant threat that needs to be fought. That is the adult paradigm and that needs to change. And in order to change, we need to learn to be more intuitive and less analytical. Definitely, definitely. And I know that, you know, folks doing this work that you're doing and folks doing the work that I'm involved with is, uh, is changing that paradigm quite rapidly, actually. And so it's, it's a very exciting time to be able to see these old systems uh, crumbling and being transformed into something that's actually life-giving and actually going to be in service to humanity, um, which is, uh, for me, a very exciting sign of the times um, and a, an exciting opportunity to really be part of ushering in this new understanding um, and this new um, way of existing that can be far more peaceful and far more harmonious and far more uh, centered around this idea of human thriving rather than economic development or whatever the Absolutely. driving force has been. Yep, couldn't agree more. I'm excited too. Let's hope that when the old system collapses, it doesn't take too much on, on its down path with it. Um, you know, let's just say, let's just hope that it just collapses just by itself and then we're going to use the rubble and rebuild something new. Nothing, will, nothing is ever lost in nature. It simply transfers from one form into another. Definitely, definitely. And so, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours and I definitely want to have you back on to continue expanding on a lot of these topics. And, uh, but until then, I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, where can people find more? And I, like I said, I'll link in the show notes over at brianhardy.ca forward slash Georgie. That's Georgie with an I. I'll link to a bunch of things we've mentioned. But, uh, but Georgie, where would you direct people who are, you know, they're really uh, hungry for this knowledge and they want to dive deeper into, you know, some of the stuff that you put together um, or some of the other interviews you've done? Where, where, where would you direct folks to? Yeah, I used to post on various forums. Uh, they were hosted by other people, but uh, over the last month or so, I've started my own blog. So that's probably the best place to go. Um, and it's very easy. My my online moniker, 
uh, is Heydut, and that's how I'm usually known amongst the online community. But the, the, the blog is very simple. It's heydut.me. So it's H is in Harry, A-I, D is in dog, U, T is in Tom, dot me. You just go to that website and then the, my latest post will show up. And as I mentioned uh, during the show, I'll repeat it again. Almost nothing I say, it's my own concoction. Um, it, almost everything I say, it's actually quotes from experimental studies. And of course, you know, studies can be wildly differing in their point of view. But over time, if you're persistent and if you follow the clues, eventually things start to make sense. It's just a lot of junk out there, unfortunately. Um, the way things are set up right now is that uh, everybody who is, who is given a, 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 a loudspeaker starts to yell because they think they have something to say. Um, and some of these people are paid to muddy the waters. But don't worry, over time things will, will, will crystallize. So that's the best place to find me. Um, and we also have a, uh, like a small product shop for products that I've developed over time based on the, these ideas of metabolic therapy. The company is called Idea Labs, and the website is idealabsdc.com. So Idea Labs is a lab, is labs for ideas, right? Idea Labs, and then DC, Diaz and Dogs, Diaz and Charlie, all one word, .com, because we're based in Washington, DC. Yes, and I definitely want to have you on to talk um, about some of the thinking behind those formulas. Um, and for those listening, these are mostly, I think, if not all, topical formulas. So rather yes. than using, um, you know, as most supplements do, rather than using digestion as our, our vehicle, um, going straight through the skin, which has a lot of benefits from, from what I'm looking at. And uh, again, it's what intrigued me when I started following some of your work um, was that uh, mechanism for delivery and, and how uh, much more effective that can be and how given that most people already have terrible digestive issues going on, um, that we can just bypass that and make sure we're actually going to get things that we need into the system at therapeutic amounts. Um, so thank you for putting those together and thank you for coming on and sharing and, uh, you know, just being such what I perceive to be really a warrior of truth in this space of wellness and health and, you know, wanting to really help people and doing it in a, in a humble yet confident and well, uh, well-researched fashion. It's, it's really inspiring. And so, uh, I just thank you, um, you know, from the bottom of my heart for, for doing this and putting so much work and effort and time into it. And uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation in the not too distant future. Likewise, Brian. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Um, you know, I do this mostly because it's interesting. It's not about the money. At some point, I simply realized that my current day job was going to get the best out of me. So I decided to Take matter, matters into my own, in my own hands, which is something we discussed uh, on the podcast as well. Ultimately, when people feel empowered and when people feel capable of taking matters into their own hands, that is one of the fundamental requirements for good health. Creating uh, blind and, and, frankly, ignorant sheep that follow blindly doctor's orders is not a recipe for health. Uh, it may work a few times. Um, and actually, it's starting to really not work even a few times. Um, it's just it's turning into a giant pill mill or service, you know, services provider mill, and people people's health is plummeting. Um, but you know, with the the information is out there. The, the good news, the knowledge and the information is out there. It's simply a matter of putting in the effort and you know, putting in the time to separate the good from the bad, and then taking matters into our own hands. You know, starting to act upon based upon our instincts and our knowledge, 
and not other people's, uh, in not, in, in, in not on some expert's interpretation. And the expert, of course, has vested interest uh, for us to do what the expert wants, not what we want. Yes, couldn't have said it any better myself. So, for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you appreciated this episode, give it a like or share on social media. Forward it to somebody who you know could benefit because that's how we spread these ideas is one person at a time. And until next time, have a healthy week and keep redefining reality. Ciao for now. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, for supporting this vision, and for supporting my work. If you want to do that, you can go and click the links that I generate in the show notes for each episode and visit the affiliates that I work alongside or book yourself a consult to work one-on-one. Any and all of those things go a long way to supporting my work, supporting this podcast, and supporting the continued research and development of this kind of content. So I thank you for that. Have a glorious, beautiful day, and I'll catch you next time.